agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome to the show, Ken. It's great to be back, Trey. Well, Ken, I'm actually going to be selfish just for a couple of moments uh, as we get the the show going, because some of our listeners actually might know uh, this individual, Dr. John Maple. Uh, He died on Thursday night, uh, this evening after a a protracted battle with cancer. Dr. Maple, he was actually the reason, Ken, that I uh, came to Oklahoma Christian University. He was the former chair of the History and Political Science Department here. Uh, and he's a huge reason, you know, why I'm here and, and I'm doing what I am today. And it was really kind of deeply humbling today for me uh, when I got to take over for him two years ago. And then today when I found out uh, that he had uh, passed away and it was particularly ironic because it was the same day in the same location, only I was sitting on the other side of the table. Uh, that he was uh, making some uh, very cogent arguments why I should uproot my life again uh, and uh, move to Oklahoma. And so for those of you who are listening, uh, who I know you come from around the area of Oklahoma or connections with OC, uh, I know that you too will uh, sadly be missing Dr. John Maple. Uh, And uh, uh, John, I wish you were still sitting in this seat uh, because then you'd be dealing with all the paperwork. But no, I mean that honest. But um, Ken, what I do want to move on to is our big story. And I think one of the biggest stories that came out of this last week, and I think we're going to be talking about this for some time, and that's the battle uh, between the, I'm, I'm going to call it the Republican Civil War. <laughs> um And it's taken the form this past week of a couple of uh, statements. One from Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor turned into an op-ed, and then from a statement from Trump about McConnell. And I'm going to be honest, I actually have a dog in this fight. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Um, But So while I disagree with McConnell on a lot of things, I think he is right here. So here's what was said. Here's what went down. Uh, On the floor of the Senate, McConnell argued that Americans uh, beat and bloodied their own police and attacked Congress because, quote, they had been uh, fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth because he was angry he'd lost an election, end quote. He would go on to say on the Senate floor uh, that Trump, quote, practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of that day, end quote. He'd also go on and say that, quote, the leader of the free world cannot spend weeks thundering that shadowy forces are stealing our country and then feign surprise when people believe him and do reckless Things, end quote. So <clears throat> Trump is kind of uh, then shot back and argued that the Republican Party is never going to be respected or strong again as long as quote unquote leaders like McConnell are at the helm. In Trump's own words from his statement, he said, We know our America First agenda, agenda is a winner, not McConnell's Beltway First agenda or Biden's American America Last. Uh, He would go on to blast him, uh, meaning McConnell, for losing Georgia, for not being willing to issue $2,000 checks, is which what he argues handed Georgia to the the Democrat. And then in the line, 
that has been making the rounds in the news. Uh, he noted, Mitch is a sour, excuse me, Mitch is a dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. And if Republican senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again. Now, that's some pretty, that's some pretty strong words there, Ken. Now, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, but I, I do want to say just one thing into this, because again, I, I have, a, I have a, a, a bit to fight here. And that's to say that if, if Trump, if he was listening, and I know he's not, that my response to this little bit of a uh, statement he has here is, Trump, he's the embarrassment. He's been the embarrassment to the conservative and libertarian alliance that has always held together the Republican Party. And more than any other single person has shaken my fundamental belief of myself as a Republican. And so I think Trump is the one who created a tent that has included some of the most despicable groups, including neo-Nazis, and trying to bring them, and successfully in many cases, into the party. And I think that Trump's going to go down without question uh, in history along the likes of Andrew Jackson as the worst president uh, in American history. So I've been pretty clear on where I stand, but but uh, uh, Ken, what do you think about this ongoing Republican war and what it might mean for party realignment, for politics in the upcoming 2020-2022 midterm elections? Uh, what do you think about this? I mean, this is, this is some pretty intense public feuding. Yeah, well, first, I just got a first. Did you mean Andrew Johnson? Uh, Andrew Jackson is still on the $20 bill. People, some, some people think he's a good president. Listen, uh, if, if you mass <laughs> genocide people, you're going to have to be in my book down just a little bit. Um, so he's on the $20 bill. But I, I have, listen, he, he is the single handed cause for uh, how many countless uh, of a genocide. I yeah, mean, I just yeah. I can't get over that one. So I, I did yeah. mean him. Johnson okay. is bad. I don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to suggest that Johnson was a great president. <laughs> no, but, I didn't know. Like, yeah, he's not my president, that's for sure. But I uh, I would have ranked probably Andrew Johnson or James Buchanan even a little lower. So I think um, Trump, yeah, he's, he's certainly going to be thought of in that breath. Well, in terms of civil war, you know, it's a pretty one-sided war because I think uh, McConnell has absolutely no interest in even um, – engaging in whatever war is going on at all. You know, he's he has not responded. He's not going to respond. Um, he doesn't need to he, respond. He doesn't need to respond. He doesn't. I think he has said he's never going to um, speak to Trump again. And, and, and he's probably never going to speak of Trump again. He's just uh, it, this nonsense has no impact on McConnell at all. I mean, even, even the idea that Trump says he's going to primary McConnell. Well, I mean, McConnell just got reelected to a six-year term in 2020. Um, if he wants to run again in uh, 2026, when he's about 85 years old, um, uh, you know, Trump's going to be in no position to do anything about primarying him. I mean, it's a it's well. As a, a matter of fact, for a little bit of inside baseball, it, it, you know, this past week, Trump, uh, excuse me, uh, McConnell had actually signaled to Kentucky lawmakers that he'd like to see the rules for how senators are replaced if they leave midterm uh, changed uh, so that governors would actually be picking from a a, a list of three or a shorter list that's uh, given to them in large part because, of course, the, the current uh, governor of Kentucky is from the opposite party of, uh, of Mitch McConnell, which might signal something right there about along the lines of what you're talking about. 
Yeah, I saw that, but actually, I don't expect McConnell um, to to voluntarily resign or retire before the end of his six year term. I think he, um, you know, I, I, I interpret that. Um, I, I do probably agree it means he's not going to run again. But I, I, I would interpret that as just McConnell is always, um, you know, dotting his I's, crossing his T's, worried about, um, you know, hang, hanging on to the Senate seats that are there. And I think he's actually pushing that advice on a lot of other states as well. Um, that if, if there are states where um, uh, there's uh, gubernatorial appointments to um, fill vacancies, you know, if there's a Democratic governor, um, I think he's just generally, you know, being his usual strategic tactical self and saying we got to make sure that a Democratic governor can't possibly choose a, a Democratic um, uh, interim senator uh, to, to fill a vacancy. So I don't I don't think he's actually signaling that he's planning to leave earlier, that he thinks Rand Paul is going to leave early. But. But yeah, McConnell, I mean, he uh, he is in he's in a complete catbird seat to totally ignore Trump. I mean, I think to, to the extent that there's any civil war at all, um, even though I think McConnell is absurdly stronger than Trump in every possible respect. Um, the one thing is there could be a civil war amongst the uh, electorate because it probably is true that um, Trump Trump voters are a more numerous faction now. Um, in the uh, Republican Party than the type of voters that we would have thought of previously as establishment Republican voters. Um, so that's something that um, could go in a lot of different directions going forward. But um, I don't know that Trump or Trumpism is well organized enough to, 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 to seriously um, mount a, 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 a serious uh, attack on the, on, the, on, the, on the party leadership. And I don't actually know that there are any successors to Trump out there that, you know, even though people like Hawley and, and Cruz are trying to kind of position themselves that way, I, I don't think those kind of people have much appeal to, to Trump's actual voters. So I don't, I don't really know how to read all that. What, what, what do you think? I mean, you know, it's funny because I, we don't often disagree. I think we, we actually have a shade of disagreement, but not in the way that I would have imagined we would. Uh, and I think that you're underestimating the – I don't disagree when you say you call the Trump supporters disorganized. And I know what you mean by that. In other words, they don't have a systematic way of, of pushing the party forward. Um, but I think you need to be careful. And, and you were hinting at it when you said, well, what about the electorate? But of course, the individuals who are going to be coming into the party. I mean, we'll look at Green. Look at Representative Green. I don't think that in a pre-Trump universe you're going to have a Green in office. Uh, and, and so I'm I'm a little bit more concerned that that more traditional Republicans, i.e., that conservative libertarian alliance that we've long had that I mentioned um, earlier. You know, I think that really is going to have to fight to remain uh, the bulwark of the Republican Party. The idea that I think Trump is going to go away, I think, has been overplayed by many of us who are just uh, tired of him. I I get that. Yeah, I don't I don't completely disagree with that, but I just would see it maybe. Slightly differently. I, I, you're right, of course, that someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene is only is only possible because of Trump, and she's not going to be the only one of her type. In fact, she's already not the only one of her type. There's a congressman, Congresswoman Boebert from Colorado, is kind of of that type now. Uh, there's a few, but um, I think in 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 all but the tiniest handful of states. Uh, if 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 that if 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 a candidate like that ran statewide. 
they would not be able to win, right? So that that to the extent that Trump is, you sound has, like me in 2015, thinking that Trump couldn't win. Yeah, well, you know, Trump had a sort of advantage. I suppose one thing that Trump had going for him, besides the fact that he was a TV celebrity with a fair amount of charisma, and 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 also that he got to run in a field that was absurdly crowded, so a lot of the other uh, candidates were splitting the vote on each other, um, was that. I think and maybe this is built into what you just said, that, that the Republican Party uh, electorate, it's really been some time since they were all that conservative by conventional measures of conservatism. Mm-hmm. And you might say when they when they nominated George W. Bush in 2000, he really probably was the most conservative candidate or a very conservative candidate that the uh, Republicans could choose. But then if you look from 2008, 2012, 2016, um, so you get McCain, Romney, Trump. You know, they don't have a lot in common with each other, but what those three have in common with each other is that every single one of them was the least conservative candidate in the primary. Um, and so I think there is this, uh, you know, there, there, there is this um, uh, sense that the, the Republican Party has sort of been built by the conservative movement, but the Republican Party electorate um, isn't really, you know, all that animated or motivated by that conservative movement. And they're animated or motivated by different things. And, um, you know, Trumpism, you know, I think to the country's great detriment, kind of uh, latched on uh, racism and nativism um, and to some extent sexism uh, as, as you know, things that could excite um a big chunk of voters who really didn't care about uh, conservative movement issues. Um, well, and but, I, I think you need yeah. to include in that uh, there, there's a lot of economic voters in there. And, and I think one of the things that individuals like myself did not successfully see, and I'll be straight about that, is I think there were a lot of conservatives who, excuse me, Republicans, not conservatives. I think there were a, a number of, uh, of Republican voters who saw uh, expanding international trade as being an, an economic harm. And so I don't disagree what you're saying about kind of that nativism. I think part of it is also not just tied up uh, in terms of culture, but I think there's some underlying economic unease there in, in, in a global economy and in, in recognizing advantages of, of countries trading. And I think that's a big portion of what made Trump successful. As a matter of fact, on the left, I think that's what is a large part of what makes Bernie Sanders successful. I see a lot of similarities uh, between the two, at least on that one particular item. I wonder about it. I mean, you certainly could be right about that. And, and um, you know, I, I, I'm just really going with a, a gut feeling here more than anything that could refute what you just said. But I I would look at that more like the, the motivations. You know, so it's true that people who oppose free trade might support Trump or they might support Sanders. But my, my gut instinct and my, you know, kind of interactions with people in that camp is that of people who support, who, who oppose free trade, um, if you're going to try to figure out, well, which of them are going to be the ones that support Trump and which are going to be the ones that support Sanders, um, it really feels to me like the ones who um, support Trump, they start from the position of nativism so that what they don't like about free trade really has very little to do with economics. It's only just that they they don't like the the interaction with foreigners. They don't like the I influence would agree. of foreigners. I, I will agree with you there. I think what, what distinguishes it is the two things get tied together, right? That ideas of economics and culture uh, merge in, in, into, into almost a singular ideological uh, position. 
so I don't. I, I, I think continue, it's overlap. Though, I think yeah. it's overlap more than single ideological because I do think the Sanders people who are against free trade, you know, their issue is that they think it weakened the labor unions in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of. It's not they're not really coming at it from an ideology of nativism. In fact, I think a lot of them would be fine with free trade if it could be accompanied by um, an international labor movement, you know, so that it, so that it didn't weaken um, uh, unions. So I think the the impact on, on unionized labor, organized labor, I think, is is the primary concern for the Sanders voters. And I think just the, the idea that, you know, we're, we're actually involved with foreigners seems it seems to me more um Kind of atavistic rather than economic, you know, in terms yeah. of why that's an issue for the for the for the Trump voters. Well, you know, I want to one of the other things that came out of this civil war, and I've you know, this has been something that I have been kind of gelling and journaling about a little bit, but I really wasn't quite sure how to put it into words until I think this week. And, and this is a question for you, Ken, because I think it, it really has to be answered from the Democrats, and that is. I think that Democrats, more so than they're showing, need to be worried about this uh, Republican civil war. And and here's why, and and this is what I've been having uh, time trying to come to thinking about this, is you kind of go back in history and you think to the era of good feelings, the last time we really had one dominant political party. And I could see in the short term maybe something like that being the case in the wake of Trump, where... Republicans are not able to to put forward uh, a, a effective candidates in part because we're divided among ourselves. And but here's where it kind of then comes for you, Ken. And I worry a little bit about this because we really need robust political discourse. I mean, that's one of the the underlying principles of this show. And one of the things I've kind of noticed as we've moved forward, maybe just a touch, and I'm curious about your take, is that I fear that a lot of Democrats or a lot of leftists who I think have rightly assailed Trumpism, and I've been on board with them for that, might be falling into a discourse now where there could be no loyal opposition. In other words, you're rightfully attacking a Trump, an individual and a system of values that is antithetical uh, to, uh, to Republican government. Uh, but then at some point, w- how do Democrats work to ensure that there's kind of a robust political party system where they can have positive discourse and disagree with the party while at the same time kind of uh, being able to back away from the very successful language and the rightful language of assailing individuals like Trump? And, and I'm thinking about this in terms most recently as I've seen some of the, the tweets coming from Democratic congresspersons in the past. Week and that's kind of what gelled it for me here for for you, Ken. So, what do you think about that? So, kind of what what should what do Democrats need to think about the the Republican Civil War uh, and, and that kind of language shift if we can move away from a Trump? Yeah, well, I, I guess <laughs> I agree with part of your diagnosis, but maybe not quite with the pres- prescription. So, okay, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, 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 so I, I think. Um, it will, if, if, if there's a lot of instability um, in the Republican Party and if kind of Trumpist groups perhaps aligned with the kind of um, militias that we've seen, including, I think, some of the militia groups that attack the Capitol, um, and, and that becomes kind of a rump 
part of the Republican Party or, or just spins off into a different party or, or takes over the Republican Party. I think the, 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 that those kinds of groups um, getting the control of one of our great political parties definitely does pose um, a lot of danger to the stability of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I certainly agree with that. Um, on the other hand, um, if you could hypothesize, you know, that um, differently, and I think this was implicit in your question, you know, maybe what happens isn't that um, violent militias take over the Republican Party, but maybe what happens is just that the Republican Party can't hold together as a viable party. And so Democrats, um, you know, for a while um, become so dominant that we don't have a functioning two-party system. Um well, actually, that wouldn't bother me, and and I think that that um, you know sort no, of is so what happens so when you say, the, in other words, just having a democratic party, a, a single party system, wouldn't bother you. I'm a little would surprised to hear yeah. you that. Yeah, it would not bother me. I, I actually you mentioned believe... before on the show how you think that a, 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 a political systems are best done when you can have. I was even trying to use your words as I was asking. You've oftentimes talked about the loyal opposition. So I'm yeah. a little surprised about that. I'm no, well, I, I do believe that. But I, I think it's not a question of best. It's a question of second best right now. Right. So, um, yeah, the, the best of all would be a, 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 well, a well-functioning two-party system. But I, I'll stand by that. I've said it before. I'll say it again. And I, I know that's where your question was coming from. But I think we're in a world of second best right now. And, and, and if the question is, you know, we have a two-party system right now where, in fact, you know, the Senate's divided 50-50, the House is closely divided. Um, but, I, but I see that, you know, under current political uh, circumstances, that's not so good because you have, um, you know, it doesn't give you the chance of achieving uh, any kind of bipartisan accomplishments um, if you've got such um, extreme polarization, not only among the elected officials, but actually being demanded by their constituents um, that, that um, the, the opposition party sees its only goal as to, you know, being to make the majority party a failure and therefore to, you know, not to try to make deals with them about anything, um, not to find points of mutual agreement or mutual interest, but just to sabotage to the maximum extent possible um, the, the any kind of achievements that could be good for the country. Uh, I think that's the position we're actually in right now. And so I think I think from that, um, it would actually move the country forward uh, to, um, you know, eliminate that kind of um, dysfunction by having a period where, you know, one party was more dominant. And I, I do think if you look at the 1930s um, and into the early 1940s, um, where, you know, the, the country really wasn't able to deal with the Great Depression properly until you had basically, you know, significant one party rule and probably couldn't have dealt with World War II properly if we didn't have a significant one party rule. And still, you know, at the end of World War II, when, when those enormous crises passed and when the Republican Party had been so decimated for a decade that it it really had to rebuild. Um, we benefited from a you know pretty pretty good rebirth of a of, of the Republican Party at that point in time. I think it, you know being um, in better shape than it's been in at many other points in time. You know after having suffered a decade of of not being part of our politics. So I, th- I think that kind of um, you know cleansing of a the the. Um, a situation where the parties can completely gridlock each other and make the government dysfunctional through a period of one-party rule, um, I think would be okay. And I, and I do think that that would not be sustainable for any longer than it was in the decade from 1934 to 1944. So um, three, or four back- pre- three or four presidential cycles, effectively. 
Yeah, yeah, I'd say probably three. Um, and, you know, we typically, I mean, we had Eisenhower elected, you know, just, um, you know, only within five or six years after Roosevelt died. Um, so, you know, Roosevelt was getting elected by what, 70, 75% of the vote. You know, the, the Congress was 70, 75% um, Democratic. Uh, now, I would Roosevelt- say he probably is a little bit of a unique case. I'm not sure if I would, I would use that as, as an example there, because in large part, both historically, both political parties would have been happy to have Eisenhower run for them. He just ended up opting for the Republicans for a couple of maybe not not exactly ideological reasons, just to be brief. No, no, no. But I think that's actually part of my point, that it's only because the Republicans had been so decimated for a decade that they needed to think about how could they start appealing to voters again. And I think that made them open to somebody like Eisenhower because he could win elections. Whereas if they had never been decimated, they would have stuck with much more of the Herbert Hoover types. They wouldn't have been open to a centrist like Eisenhower. Oh, I so, see what you're getting yeah, at. I see. Yeah, what, okay, so, so, okay. Yeah. So I think it was their very, um, you know, their, their political misfortunes that made them go back to the drawing board and try to figure out how to be a, a party that could actually be attractive to voters in the center and that that the Republicans benefited, you know, from the complete um, discrediting of of Hooverism um, that kind of created an opening for, you know, what had been their ideology to kind of just um, die out and for them to come back as a renewed party that had a great deal to contribute to the country. Um, you know, that, that, that could only happen. The Eisenhower can only become their nominee because um, I think of the abject defeat that they had suffered um, from, from, from the Hoover uh, generation. And I think I think we probably do have a little bit of disagreement there before we move forward in that that I agree that you don't want to have a, a system where the opposition is a is a breakdown. <laughs> right. Uh, as yeah. you kind of put it, that rump. Uh, potentially the, of the Republican Party. I, I, I think, though, I, I kind of I have a maybe a more I appreciate that you call it the second best position when you talk about the one the one party domination um, or, or having a one party system. Excuse me. But I, I think where I might disagree a little bit is, is I don't think that that was where you see the years of FDR as probably being a, a better thing, while I, I'm not as negative on FDR as some, I don't think, I think that we were saved from some of the more unfortunate FDR pushes, say, court packing, for example, uh, because there still was, in fact, an actual uh, loyal opposition from a number of different branches functioning properly as separation of powers. And so I, I, I would be hesitant to quite go as far as you are down that path of calling it a second best option. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I recognize that's a shade of difference. But we need to move on to our next uh, topic. But before we do that, we're going to take a short break uh, with a sponsor. And when we come back, we're going to be taking a look at Trump's acquittal. And we're going to focus on some of the upcoming cases that uh, he might still face uh, right after this short break. Well, Ken, we want to chat a little bit uh, about Trump's acquittal. Now, I know that last week uh, we actually had a new individual uh, joining us on The Politics Guys, and both of us had listened in on that one when Olivia joined Mike and Jay. Uh, but one of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about in the last show, because they were doing it on a Saturday, was really kind of pushing a little bit deeper into the question of, well, what might 
Trump now face on the legal side, right? So as we mentioned earlier, you know, McConnell effectively made the argument earlier this week after the uh, vote, again, after they had done the show, saying, look, this is a constitutional issue. I don't begrudge anybody who disagrees or comes on the other side, uh, but you can't impeach uh, a former president. And that was something that we had talked about on the show, the two of us. Uh, we obviously came to a slightly different conclusion on that <laughs> than, than McConnell. Uh, but he will go on to effectively say, I think that he is morally responsible. Or, or the more negative way of looking at this is saying, well, you know, he kicked it to the courts to have to actually deal with it. Now, you might see that's a, as a bad thing or a good thing. We'll put that to the side for just a minute. But there are still six really big cases being uh, laid out. Now, Mike last week, he, he didn't seem to be he didn't seem to think that this there was much hope here. Uh, but I do want to at least list the six and kind of get your take, Ken, on, you know, what might Trump's future be post acquittal here? You know, one, we've got the ongoing uh, hush money allegations lawsuit. Uh, the second big t- uh, um set of cases is the tax and bank fraud investigation that's going on. The third one is we have a big real estate fraud investigation that's going on. We have the emoluments clause, which is the fourth. We've, of course, got the sexual misconduct lawsuit, which is actually a, a body of lawsuits you might think of as being one or our fifth. And then, of course, one of the other big ones is the Mary Trump lawsuit uh, that's ongoing with Trump. So, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell effectively says, look, this is the uh, this is the way that he's going to be held responsible. And of course, now, I mean, maybe the seventh could even be here. Any of the fallout uh, from what happens from the D.C. incident in, in the wake of his words. So what do you think is the few? I mean, you're a lawyer. So Trump comes to your office and he plunks down a million dollars and he says, hey, hey what, what, what's going on? You know, what, what do you what do you say to all that, Ken? Well, first thing is he better plunk down that million because I'm not going to represent him unless he pays in advance. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems to be the case is that he doesn't always pay, which yeah. is, I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I have worked around a lot uh, uh, of attorneys. I mean, generally, it's a little bit harder when you haven't paid your bill to get another attorney. But man, every which way Trump seems to turn, there always seems to be some attorney who's like, yeah, I'll take his case up. And I think, what about me? I've got a better case. Take me up. I, I, I cannot pay you, too. <laughs> He, he offered to pay Rudy Giuliani $20,000 a day to represent him in these cases after the election, and which is a very high fee. It might be one of the highest fees in the country. And then he stiffed him on the whole thing. You know, he, didn't, he didn't pay him any well, of here, it. Here we go, Ken. Here's what I'll do. I, I promise you right now that if you will take up all the law, rest of my lawsuits for my life, I will pay you as much money as you right. want per day, as yeah. long as you won't collect. <laughs> well, I, I think Trump, you know, is, um, you know, he's, I think he'll be able to skate through some of these lawsuits, but I think he's going to be in big trouble. And some of them, he'll probably end up trying to settle. Uh, he'll probably end up trying to settle several of them because he won't want to go to trial. Um, and, uh, and I also think there's going to be a lot more. In fact, you mentioned at the end, there could be some civil liability arising out of the January 6th uh, insurrection. And I'm, I'm quite sure that there will be a lot of cases. I think the, the first one of those was already filed um, by Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi. Yep. Uh, he filed a civil lawsuit uh, against Trump and Giuliani um, for um, causing the, uh, the the insurrection by the violent mob that broke into the Capitol. Since you brought um, him up, can I just ask? I had a question I was going to ask on his particular front. Do you think he's going to actually end up having... St- standing for that suit? 
Yeah, I think he will. I mean, there, there's, you know, I think the, the question about whether he would would, would stem from a, a, a concept called legislative standing, which says that um, generally, um, if a legislator, for instance, um, votes against a bill, argues in Congress that the bill is unconstitutional, and then the bill passes anyhow, um, and then the legislator wants to go to court and say, um, ask the court to strike down this law that, on the ground that it's unconstitutional, uh, typically in those kind of situations, the courts will say, well, the legislator doesn't have standing to do that. Um, right. Only someone who's affected by the law. But in this case, he's not suing in his capacity as a legislator. He's suing in his capacity as a person who was, in fact, violently attacked. Right. So um, so it's not it's not the it's not that he's saying my, my vote somehow was diluted by something Trump did. Um, there'd be standing issues about that. But no, he's saying I, I had to cower in my office and I, I could have been killed by this mob that he um, sent in there. That's a that's a direct particularized injury in fact. So I don't I don't think he should have any problem establishing standing. Now, now I, I, I took you down that rabbit hole, so I'm going to bring you back uh, to you know to the original kind of the question. And you were already mentioning there that you thought that Trump could be in, in trouble for some of these, and obviously try to uh, you know settle out of court some of these. Although that might be harder in this uh, at this particular stage of his uh, uh, of these trials and and what he's done in the past. Where do you think he might have the biggest uh, issues? So obviously one of them, as you've already mentioned, is here the, uh, the kind of the insurrection activity. What about these other six? Yeah. Well, just before we leave the insurrection oh, activity, please continue, I, yeah. Yeah. one more thing I wanted to say about that is, you know, you, you had some doubts, and I think a lot of judges might share some of those doubts about why Congressman Thompson is the proper plaintiff here. But don't forget, there's there's there were some officers killed right there that day. There yeah, were, see, that's um, who I thought would probably yeah, have the yeah. biggest standing is I assumed that we would see some lawsuits stemming from oh. their death. That That's we, where we, I we, thought we'd have it. Yeah, we absolutely will. I mean, those haven't been filed yet, but um, yeah, they will be filed. And not only a few killed and a few who committed suicide shortly after, but also um, uh, I think more than 100 Capitol Police officers were injured that day. Um, you know, and every one of them's got a lawsuit. So, I, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's some of them who won't file, but my, my guess is you're going to see, you know, upwards of 50 separate lawsuits filed by people who actually sustained injuries or death as a result of that insurrection. And so that's, you know, there's a that's a lot of money that's uh, um, at stake there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that, that that's probably going to be his biggest single source of uh, civil uh, liability. And I would not rule out uh, criminal liability from that either. I mean, I think um, one reason that we're not hearing much about that right now is I think that uh, the the Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to keep themselves a million miles out of those kind of discussions. They're they're not going to make any decisions about whether to uh, prosecute uh, Trump for the events of January 6th or probably for anything. You know, I think they're going to leave that all in the hands of the um, uh, law enforcement. But but right now. You know, there may be, um, you know, that, that uh, the FBI and, and career prosecutors may already be doing um, investigations into Trump's role in all that. Um, but they're properly keeping that uh confidential as the Justice Department's supposed to do when it's doing investigating. And, you know, Trump Trump always would make a big point of, you know, well, we're, we're, we're having the Durham investigation of the investigators. <laughs> and, you know, but but that's not actually really the way the, the Justice Department normally operates. You know, normally if something's at the state 
stage of being investigated, um, they're not supposed to cast aspersions on people who are being investigated by letting it known publicly that they're doing an investigation. And and I think in the end, there's going to be career investigators, career officials um, finding facts, making confidential reports about whether there's probable cause to bring criminal charges. And then the people on the front lines who are going to have to decide whether to move ahead with that or not are mostly going to be the U.S. attorneys for the particular districts and primarily the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. And not only isn't there one right now, um, but Biden hasn't even nominated someone to be U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, because I think actually he's going to want to confer with uh, Merrick Garland about that after Merrick Garland's confirmed. And he hasn't been confirmed yet either. So. I think that's a really important point is I think that we forget that not all of the apparatus of the executive office is nearly in place yet. Uh, And and so when we're having a a number of these conversations, I think for I think for a lot of people, there's always a lot of emotion. There's a lot of desire for things to happen really rapidly. Uh, But it's not unusual for it to take time to get all these positions filled. And we're not in normal times anyway, because we were we were already dealing with the, uh, the the trial itself, which of course has delayed some of this. And I'm not saying that's a wrong; that's just a, a function right. of what's happening. Yeah, well, I do think there was also some obstruction when um, when the Senate couldn't get reorganized uh, after the election, um, and and Lindsey Graham was still running the Judiciary Committee until the Friday before the impeachment trial. Um, that made it harder for uh, uh, Gar- Garland to get a confirmation hearing because traditionally the Attorney General would be one of those uh, positions where there should be a confirmation hearing, you know. Ideally, even before Inauguration Day, so that they could vote um, on or on Inauguration Day or the next day to confirm a, a attorney general. But be that as it may, um, yeah, I think that we're only at the stage now where career law enforcement officials would be quietly investigating and would never be in a position to do anything other than um, present their investigative findings to um, the responsible uh, um, uh, uh, superior officials who could make the decision whether to proceed or not. And those and those officials aren't even in, on the job yet. So so, so I, I think it's not surprising we're not hearing anything about criminal prosecution relating from January 6th. But I, I think I think it's it's likely to happen, um, but it's likely to take a little while, you know, before things start moving forward on that. Um, and then now we can go to some of the other. I slowed you down on that no, one. No, it's all good. The other cases as well. There was yeah. nothing slow about it. I mean, there's there's always. I think that's part of the great thing about having these kinds of conversations is is that we both end up focusing on things that might be a little bit different. But, you know, so again, the the six ongoing, in other words, the ones that were already happening, uh, that package, we have the hush money, we have the tax and bank fraud investigation, the real estate fraud investigation, the emoluments uh, cases. Matter of fact, th- that one particularly is, is, is worth looking at because the Supreme Court has been unusual in this. I had a question. Uh, this is just, I don't even know. Uh, and I, I was curious about this on your uh, case, Ken. Has there ever been a time, because on this set of cases, we've had the longest no response from the Supreme Court over an emergency injunction, I believe, in history. But I, I wasn't, I, you know, yeah. you always want to be careful saying it's never happened that long because somebody always comes out and says, well, in 1821 um, or whatever. But uh, to the best of my ability to get it, that's been the longest it's been. Do you think that, for example, the fact that we're not hearing from the Supreme Court on that, that maybe uh, just Chief Justice Roberts is trying to kind of uh, he seems to often try to bring the court together and be that moderating voice so that there's kind of a, of a singular voice moving forward he did that in the uh, in the affordable health care act for example seemingly kind of maybe shifting his vote so that he could uh 
uh, shift the opinion itself and, and write it. Do you, do you see any of that happening here, that the court might not be willing to hear these cases? Is, is, is that the Mullimans Clause an example of, well, if they really wanted to take some of this on, wouldn't they have already issued the stay at the, by this point? I mean, again, this is, this is one of the longest yeah. that I've seen. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, this Supreme Court has been, I, I, I mean, you could, I guess there's more than one way of trying to analyze why it's been like this, but this Supreme Court has run a lot of interference that has redounded to the benefit of Trump. Um, they've let him delay uh, proceedings for a very long time, not, on, not only in the Emoluments Clause case, but, you know, one of the other ones that I'm just astounded by along those lines is, you know, from the first impeachment of Trump uh, more than a year ago, um, the, the, the House subpoenaed uh, um, Trump's then White House counsel, Don McGahn. And and the, the question of whether Don McGahn can be made to testify um, is one that the court has just simply not decided, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that that's from the first impeachment that still wasn't even decided by the second impeachment. And that and that uh, is actually one of the reasons I understand that the House managers, after winning the vote in the second impeachment to allow them to call witnesses, uh, made an agreement not to call any witnesses because they they were afraid the same thing would happen, that the the witnesses would refuse to come. And the Supreme Court would run interference by refusing to issue a ruling on that. So I think that that kind of interference that the court has been running to just run out clocks in ways that favor Trump, um, you know, that he, he's getting away with something. Do you because think the clock that the is running court out. is running out the clock because it wants to favor Trump? Or do you think it's running out the clock? And this has been my kind of operating hypothesis, because it doesn't want to have to involve itself in a political question even remotely and thereby uh, lose some of its its reserved status. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there is a long-standing history of the court attempting. Now, of course, as you move more recently, the, the court has eased up on this. Um, oh, goodness, I'm trying to think of what is the case? They call, they call it the political question doctrine. Yes. Uh, the, yes. Yeah. The idea that there's certain um, disputes between the political branches that the court should just absent itself from. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's the problem is I think there's a mixture of motives on the current court. Right. So I, th- I think that um, probably especially now that uh, Judge Justice Barrett is on the court, um, the, the center of gravity on the court might be that if they were going to rule on these cases, they would rule in favor of Trump. Um, and so I think because of that, um, and I do think that's really become cemented uh, by, by Justice Barrett's ascension to the court, I think that means that the Democrats won't on the court don't kick and scream too hard if um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts does these delaying tactics. And I think the delaying tactics from Roberts's standpoint um, probably are, as you say, um, to try to preserve the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of um, the whole country. And, and not likewise, you're not setting it, a precedent. So by saying not set, nothing, it, you don't set it, a precedent. We don't know. Uh, in, right. in, in a common law system, if you set the precedent, now you have this long-standing practice you're going to undo at some point, And that's always that's not that rarely happens. Yeah, no, I'd actually rather see them set precedents because I, I, I think if they're really going to have a majority vote and rule in favor of Trump in these cases because he's Trump and they're and they're partisans, which is what I believe is where the actual majority of the court is. And I think that's those rulings that, that Roberts is trying to forestall. Um, I think it's better that they do it both so that um, because I don't think they deserve the the, the respect of, of all Americans if they're if they're that partisan. And also because I think the um, precedents that they would set with those rulings – 
could also then redound to the benefit of later Democratic presidents. Whereas if they're always just run, running out the clock because it's Trump and they want to help him, um, then you know they they might do the opposite when there's a later Democratic president. So um, so I I don't really appreciate it, but I think um, I think the Dems probably do think it's sometimes better to let the Republicans run out the clock than to actually make terrible rulings. And and I think Roberts thinks it's better to run out the clock than um, than to make divisive rulings, you know? And so, and so I think that's, uh, you know, I think that there's a kind of overlap of motives there, but they really have not, you know, a lot of those kinds of cases about presidential power, they've made a big point of not deciding them while Trump was president. Um, and um, they have not invoked the political question doctrine, right? So one thing the court could have done but didn't do is they could have actually issued a ruling saying um, this is a subject that the court lacks jurisdiction to rule on, and and therefore we're not going to rule on it. Um, uh, they, 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 that's that's how it's been done in past political question doctrine cases. Um, but the court has never done that in any of these cases. They've just taken the cases, they've they've exercised jurisdiction over them, and then they just have not decided them. Yeah. And uh, um, so it's it's a little bit different. And uh, I, I think it's bad. And uh, I, I I wish they would. I actually think they're going to let them run out the clock completely in the emoluments clause case, and that the final the final um, uh, boom in that case, when the final boom drops, it's going to be that the case is now moot because he's not the president anymore. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Now, I just for my own edification, though, I'm going to have to say the thing that I could not think of when I was when you were talking. We were talking about the political uh, do, uh, political question doctrine was Luther v. Bourdain. Yeah, <laughs> it was That's there the in my head. I couldn't get it out for the yes. life of me. Yeah, yeah Luther versus Bourdain is the oldest of the political question yes. doctrine cases. Isn't it the first? Yeah, the first. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's okay. What so yeah. I had that right. I had that right. I was trying to get that out, and it was somewhere in the vaults of my mind. <laughs> in case, in case the the listeners want to know what that case is, this goes back to the eighteen forties. It's eighteen forty nine. Yeah. Believe. So there was actually a, a, a revolution within the state of Rhode Island. Yes. Um, and there was there was a, a military coup. When do you know um, why? I don't know why. So here, this is actually a fascinating point of history. So unlike all the other states, Rhode Island had never created its own constitution and instead was still operating off of the royal charter. And so citizens were demanding the legislature either create a state uh, constitution or at the, at least the minimum, get rid of the voting, uh, the uh, ownership of land as a voting uh, requirement, and the legislature wouldn't do either. So go ahead. But that's actually what leads to um, kind of well, the revolt. What, yeah. What ends up happening is that um, both both factions that claim to be the legitimate government in Rhode Island um, uh, claim claim that you know they, they hold their own separate elections <laughs> yes. and they. And they and they, they both claim to have won the elections. So there's two different slates of Congress members that show up um, uh, claiming to represent uh, Rhode Island. And so and, the, the uh, governor declares martial law to try to get the other ones to not <laughs> be able to show up. Yeah. And so the Supreme Court is asked to resolve this dispute. Um, and, and what the Supreme Court says is, well, uh, it's actually Congress that gets to resolve this dispute because in the um, – the 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 um, qualifications clauses of Article One, um, the um, each House of Congress gets to judge the qualifications of its own members, and so when people show up 
claiming to be members of, of um, uh, claiming to hold the same seat in Congress, uh, the, the Congress has to decide which one to recognize. Mm-hmm. And because the, the Constitution assigns that to um, Congress, which is one of the political branches, the, the, the White House being the other political branch, um, that means that the courts can't uh, make that judgment. And so, um, so we sometimes call that the political question doctrine now, that there's certain judgments that have to be made in trial-like settings um, uh, where we might normally think this is the kind of case or controversy that a court could adjudicate. But if, if the Constitution actually assigns the the resolution of those those uh, disputes to one of the two political branches, the legislative branch or the executive branch, then that means that the judicial branch has to stay out. So sometimes that's been used. Um, uh, that's the basis of why impeachment proceedings, for instance, are not judicially reviewable. Uh, the Senate has the power to try impeachments, and that means that when there were questions like the one that just came up about whether um, someone who is no longer in office um, can be um, tried in an impeachment trial, um, the answer would be, well, the court has to stay out of that. That's up to the Senate to decide. And and that's why the Senate took a vote on that and that was not reviewable in in court. So that is a a doctrine. Um, I don't believe it properly should apply to emoluments clause because there's no, the constitution doesn't say which other branch should decide whether there's been a violation of the emoluments clause. So I think the ordinary presumption that courts can decide that should apply. And and the court didn't say that it applies. They, they actually took jurisdiction over the case and then just, just you know, sat on it. And so, uh, I, yeah, and I think they've done that in several other contexts where they probably should have made a ruling about uh, whether uh, Trump had broken the law or exceeded his authority. And But I, I think they're going to let him run out the clock on the uh, um, on the emoluments. Uh, uh, its case, and I, I think they tried hard to let him run out the clock on the uh, New York uh, District Attorney's subpoenas, and it would have it would have worked if he'd been reelected, uh, because they kept even while they didn't say he was exempt from um, subpoenas in state criminal proceedings, they they kept sending it back with weird instructions like the state court has to give even more consideration than they did last time to the the fact that this guy is the sitting president and that kind of thing. And I think they would have just kept bouncing it back and forth like that for as long as Trump was in office and soon the statute of limitations would have run out. But because he didn't get reelected, he wasn't able to get away with running out the New York state statute of limitations while he was still in office. Well, you know, we could talk about that forever, clearly. So I'm going to have to pause this because we've got, a, we've got two more stories for listeners. Uh, and when we come back from this short break, so we're going to have a short break and then we're going to come back. And we're actually going to be talking about maybe one of the biggest weather events that has happened in the South uh, in modern history, at least. And that's uh, the cold snap. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the uh, politicization of the cold snap. Uh, as it dipped into Texas. So if if you're going to wait with us just for a moment for our break, and then we'll be back to talk about uh, Texas and the politicization of the cold snap. Well, Ken, there has been a lot of conversation uh, this week about the, uh, uh, well, the f- deeply frigid temperatures <laughs> uh, which dipped into the western states. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm part of this, uh, so I, I've been experiencing it. There was an unprecedented uh, amount of snow and cold even here in the Oklahoma City area where I live. Uh, here in Oklahoma City specifically, we broke a 40-year record. The last time it was uh, the highs were, were below freezing for this long was the year I was born. Born in 1983. Um, and so, likewise, though, we also beat snow totals. In this case, it wasn't just a 40 year old 
uh, 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 weather event. Instead, we actually, for all of recorded history, there has never been as much snow in Oklahoma City as there was uh, over the past few days. But that apparently has not held a candle to what's happening in Texas. And, and I want to turn to Texas because the Texas power outage, uh, a result of cold temperatures, has become a really big political issue this week. Um, Texas Governor Abbott blamed the Green New Deal and the increasingly high reliance on renewables. On Sean Hannity's Fox News show, he said, quote, it just shows that fossil fuel is necessary for the state of Texas to make sure we will be able to heat our homes in the winter times and cool our homes in the summer times, end quote. Later in the week, a Wall Street Journal editorial called for more reliance on coal, of all things, instead of either natural gas or renewables because of its reliability and pointed uh, to the disaster unfolding in Texas. On the left, of course, they blamed a lack of planning and importantly, a set of officials have t- uh, who have taken themselves off the national power grid. Uh, add into the mix that Ted Cruz was headed to Mexico uh, before he turned around after his daughter tricked him into going, I suppose, on Thursday. Uh, AOC shot out on Twitter that Governor Abbott needed to get off TV and read a book on the state's energy supply. So this is one of those items, Ken, where I thought that we as the politics guys could really bring some rational to the debate. (laughs) Uh, And so on Twitter and on the news, I have seen just numbers have abounded about uh, renewables and naturals. And so actually I have, I, yes, listeners, I went out and I researched this one. Uh, so a couple of things just so that you, we can all be on the same page. One is, is that yes, Texas does in fact have its own power grid and it's not completely connected to the rest of the nation's power grid. That grid is called um, ERCOT, E-R-C-O-T, and it's run by the company of the same name, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Now, it doesn't actually technically cover all of Texas, but it covers most of Texas. It doesn't include some locations like the Panhandle. Now, further, it's worth noting that the reason that this all happens is is that uh, back in 1882, when the very first power grid went on by Thomas Edison, there were lots of smaller companies all around the country. Uh, and then during World War One, they got more connected. Uh, they got even more interconnected during World War Two. And it's during World War Two that several te- Texas companies joined together into the precursor of ERCOT. Now, and this is where things can get very Texan is the best way I can put this. Uh, the, the Texans wanted to keep their system out of federal control. And so for anybody who wants a little bit more detail on this, because you can't go into all the details in a podcast, uh, I highly recommend there is actually an uh, article in the Journal of Natural Resources and Environment by Richard Cudley, uh, who was a member of the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. He was a, a Texan, and he kind of outlines this. But What happens in a short version is that Texas went through some deep measures, even through the 70s, to keep their power structure limited. And so eventually there's a truce between Congress and Texas that allowed Texas to continue to have its own level of independence. And so even today in 2021, ERCOT remains beyond the jurisdiction 
of the Federal Regulatory Commission uh, and therefore still largely independent of links to other power grids. And that's really unusual. The other thing is there's been all these numbers thrown around. And so I've looked this up too. Uh, And so according to the Independent Statistics and Analysis section of the U.S. Energy Information Administration, when you look at electricity consumption, so in other words, the, the stuff that's actually getting out to people to use, not for other kinds of purposes, and that's what I think is kind of key to this debate here, you can actually list all of, uh, the th- and this is all in thousands of megawatts, uh, the production that Texas has. Uh, natural gas accounts for 15,425 megawatts, again, in thousands. Uh, non-hydroelectric renewables are the next largest, uh, just shy of nine at 8,913. Uh, coal accounts for uh, 6,539. Nuclear, 3,400. Uh, hydro, uh, hydroelectric at 134 and petroleum at a mere four. So if I've done my math right, and I have, uh, that means that when you're talking about electrics, uh, renewables account for about 25.9% of the electric power grid in Texas, and natural gas accounts for about 44.82%. Uh, so I've seen a lot of other outlets get different numbers, and the best I can tell is, is that these numbers come because they're looking at the pure amount of power coming out as opposed to the power that's going for grid consumption, meaning for consumers. so a lot of the outlets on the left, I think, are kind of really under-reporting some of the most meaningful numbers. And on the right, there's just some real outright rot line going on, including that wind turbines have frozen, even though, of course, you can winterize them and they happen in, in, in far uh, northern places. Uh, and, and things like Congressperson Bobart's, you were talking about her earlier, Ken, um, that you have to use planes to de-ice wind, which was actually just a fake a bit of a, of a helicopter picture that had nothing to do with that. Um, so here's my question, Ken. Uh, in short, Texas, it seems like it froze because Texas doesn't rely on national standards. Uh, natural gas outlets were off, but the percentage of renewables is higher, and it too froze. Uh, but in long, large reason, because Texans didn't think this was ever going to happen, and so they just hadn't winterized things. But it hasn't stopped both sides from taking a shot at the other. So what do you think about how quickly the cold snap in Texas, the power outages have turned into some politicalization? uh, And do you think there's any kind of long term meaningful uh, uh, statement to be made here? Yeah, I've been trying to think about this. you know, Justice Lewis Brandeis um, said 100 years ago that, that one of the great benefits of our, our system of federalism in the United States um, is that the states can serve as laboratories of experimentation. Um, and so, you know, I guess the way he would look at this, and maybe we could, I would look at this somewhat this way, is that, you know, it's not, it was nice of Texas to, um, you know, <laughs> do this, this radical experiment in deregulation so that those of us in the other 49 states could, you know, see how it works out um, before deciding whether, whether other states should proceed to do something like this. And, you know, uh, I was thinking about his, the, his saying too, but I thought about it a different way because on the one hand we have California, which has gone a very different direction uh, as Texas has had its own set of problems. And then Texas, which thought, they, hey, man, aren't we happy that we're not California? But their fix for it didn't really fix it either, too. It doesn't seem like either major model has worked very well, Ken. Yeah, well, I don't, I, I don't, um, 
No, because I guess I, I know California had issues with high high prices, and um, and I, I don't know if that was also an issue with the fires. They were having I don't production know. issues as well. That was one of the issues yeah. for rolling blackouts, and that that, yeah. that was what what I was thinking about more specifically. Right. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, Texas, um, you know, I mean, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the whole state didn't take itself off the national grid. Most of the state did, but um, El Paso which has been having exactly the same weather as the rest of Texas, uh, has not had any, any power outages. Um, and, uh, it's, it's because they, you know, their, their power comes down through Albuquerque and can come from farther away than that. Um, if, 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 if local plants fail to generate and, uh, it does seem there's some, some benefits, um, from staying on the national grid. If your own, if your own plants start to fail you, and, Cause you can uh, then you know, get power from other locations, from other yeah. locations, yeah, which El Paso has been doing just fine. Um, even while it's been just as cold there as in other parts of Texas. Um, the other, the numbers, I actually was looking at the numbers on the ERCOT on their own webpage, um, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. And I, the numbers I'm looking at look quite close to what you said, but maybe not exactly. And what I'm seeing here is that, um, uh, and I think these numbers are very close to the ones you said, but they have it listed as 22.8% wind and 45.5% natural gas. So okay, so in the in the case for the the breakdown, the, what's going to make it just a little bit different is is that the I had put together everything that was a a uh, non hydro uh, renewable. And so there's actually a yeah. few more when you include that. But so yeah, you're, solar, yeah, solar the, in there. We're in the wind. same. Yes, we're yeah. talking about the yeah. same kind of things. Right, so almost all almost all of that category would be wind, and then just a little bit of it would be um, um, solar and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, but there um, is surprisingly some of that in Texas. I have learned so some yeah. solar. Yeah. Well, I guess the thing about wind is in the politicization of this. My, my understanding of this, and you could correct me if you if you know more than me, is that although although Texas is you know pretty heavily into wind, actually twenty two point eight percent is both, I think a lot compared to what you'd see in other states. It, and it, in fact, it is way high. Yes, you're yeah, correct. And, and, and in fact, it's more than you see in for coal. Coal being only about eighteen um, uh, percent, and wind being second again only to natural gas in Texas. Um, but yet, I don't think any of that is because of um, in, environmentalism in Texas. I think the reason you see so much use of wind in Texas is because they have a lot of wind in Texas and they have a lot of space for windmills in Texas. And so these power companies, um, you know, find it to be economic and in their own self-interest to put up windmills. And I, I don't think any regulators have, have come down on them and, and told them to put down windmills. I think it, it's uh, there's probably less regulation pushing that kind of thing in Texas than just about any place else in the country. And I, I don't know if you know anything different than that. Well, you know, and this is this, I'm glad that you pushed us in that direction, because that's where I kind of wanted to take us next. In some ways, this seems like an unforced error for a lot of Texas. So, for example, one of the and and this is, I think, just emblematic of a larger thing that we see coming from uh, Governor Abbott, because if you look at what he says locally and what he says on the Sean Hannity show, they're different messages. Uh, But did you see the message from Tim Boyd, the mayor of Colorado City, Texas? It kind of went viral this past week. Oh, yeah. Uh, Texas Texans would rather have no power than have uh, federal regulation. Yeah. As a matter of fact, this is the way that uh, he put it. He said, quote, let me hurt some feelings while I have a minute. No one owes you. uh, Well, again, I'm cleaning up his language because uh, I I, I can't speak in his English. Uh, No one owes you are, but he means or your family, anything, nor is it local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim. It's your choice. The city, the country, along with the power providers or other services owes you nothing. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a 
dm'd handout if you, uh, you don't have electricity you step up and come up with a game plan to keep your family warm and safe if you have no water deal with out and think outside of the box to supply survive and supply water to your family if you're sitting at home in the cold because you have no power and are sitting there waiting for someone to come rescue you uh, because you're you are lazy is a direct result of your raising only the strong will survive and the weak will perish ah what? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's that's. I mean, really if he goes of... on, and I could continue to, to 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 take on his rant, but I don't mean I am a libertarian here, right? But I don't even. I mean, this. He's not like he's Boyd's not some anarchist who's arguing for the for the end. I mean, he's not an anarcho-capitalist. What's going on here? I I, I cannot figure out why everybody yeah. has. I mean, it's been a bizarre response, and I don't quite have a good answer. You know, you're asking here. Well, why why is this the attack point? I get why you could have some attack points. Uh, you know, I, I get the Wall Street Journal, but I don't understand a lot of the. Texan response it, it baffles me. Well, that, that's that's what I was. That's why I started with Justice Brandeis and the, the the laboratory of experimentation, right? I mean, if, if Texans think that way, you know, if they think, well, we'd rather um, we're so committed to to deregulation or to unregulation of of businesses that we're we're perfectly willing to um, run the risk that our businesses can't um, supply um, essential services because it's better to let power companies have bad days where they can't. Pr- provide power um, than to actually regulate them to make sure that they can provide power. You know, I'd say it's it's instructive for Texas to to experiment like that and well, let the rest of been, the country it, see it, that. And you keep putting in that framework, and this on this I'm going to push back a little bit. It's not even so much about regulation in that, okay, you, you made some choices that were probably undoubtedly a little bit cheaper, uh, and I think a lot of people make those, and I get that. Who would have? Who I mean? Who would have planned for the freeze and the snow uh, on on the beaches of the Gulf of Mexico? I don't. Th- I don't think that's no, they, be. That's uh, not true. They they did, but they had. I mean, when when President Obama was still president, the you know in 2011. Well, um, I'm not they saying had, that you couldn't have predicted, but I don't think anybody's going to put the money into that. That's what I'm saying. Well, it, I mean, it's kind of like regulator... people recognize they need to save for retirement, but it doesn't mean anybody does. No, but these are closely regulated industries in in most states, and um, a regulator in any normal state would order them to do that because they shouldn't be able to make choices here that are only purely in the power company's own self-interest. The the regulator could force them to do some things that will protect the public interest. Like winterizing, yeah. Yeah. And I guess in in Texas, they're saying, um, you know, they don't want to do that. So fine. You know, but I'm glad I live in a state where it it gets cold all the time and the regulator will actually say, yeah, the regulator will say to the power company, you have to insulate those gas lines so that the gas doesn't freeze in the line. And, you know, that's just a cost of doing business in this state if you're running a power company. And that's how it is in almost every state. Um, So Texas is really taking a unique regulatory experiment here. And in, I was going to say in 2011, um, they had this kind of weather in Texas. I mean, this is a little bit worse this time, but they had enough weather and they had enough cold weather in 2011 that they had um, uh, all the power, the gas lines froze, the power went out for about 24 to 36 hours, a lot of places in the state. And, you know, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, when it was still Obama's Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, they told the Texas regulators, you know, they said, look, we don't have authority over you. But they sent him a plan and they said, you should tell 
the power companies in Texas that they have to put some insulation around the gas lines because those gas lines are going to freeze again the next time it gets this cold. And, and then you're not going to be able to get gas to the power generating plants. I mean, it's not like they weren't told that. It's just that they, they decided that they didn't care and they weren't going to regulate their power companies. Well, I mean, yes, I won't disagree on that point. No. Yeah. So I think I say good. You know, let them let them show the rest of the country what it's like to have that kind of regulatory philosophy. OK, so now, Ken, we are man, we have gone long in this show. But we've got one other really big item that we need to, to take care of. Uh, and this one is near and dear to you, Hart. It's COVID relief bill part three. Right. I mean, we got to talk about this. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, on this past this Friday, House Democrats, their one point nine trillion dollar bills full text was made available for COVID relief. Uh, it includes a number of items. It's not a big surprise uh, if, for anybody who actually wants to read through it. Uh, the, uh, the only kind of moderate surprise might be that the, the, that the House Democrats are still sticking by uh, the $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, includes the $1,400 direct checks for Americans making less than $75,000 a year, uh, an extension of unemployment benefits. It's, I have yet to be able to see if they've included the idea of extending the uh, child tax credit. Uh, that was not readily apparent to me on my brief read-through. Um, so what I do want to focus on, though, is this is this is huge. I mean, this is $1.9 trillion, and this is in addition to the already $3.5 trillion spent on COVID uh, relief. As we talked about earlier on the show, this is actually something weirdly that former President Trump wanted. He wanted to have another relief bill, but specifically wanted higher direct payouts. Uh, as a matter of fact, he blamed Mitch McConnell for not getting that done. Uh, so if we add these bills together, if this in some form $1.9 trillion goes forward about at the size that it is, that means we're going to be hitting $5.4 trillion uh, in in new spending. So, Ken, my question is this. I get the Democrats want to expand relief, um, but are we getting into some historic territory when it comes to spending? And when I say historic, I want to put this in context. Uh, the the mandatory budget in 2021 for the U.S. government alone was 2.966 trillion, uh, and that's a number that many analysts already thought, myself included, was pretty worrisome. These bills outspend significantly just the mandatory budget. Uh, as a matter of fact, these three bills are spending close to twice that amount on COVID relief. That even outpaces outlays um, for defense. Another way to look at it is if you take a look at the fiscal year of 2019, the federal budget came out uh, less than just the COVID relief. So the uh, fed- for fiscal year of 2019, total government spending was $4.448 trillion. We had a budget deficit on that of just shy of a trillion, $984 billion. The COVID relief bills in totality will be more in spending than the entire federal budget in 2019 alone. So, Ken, I know a lot of times, and, and this has been a point that you've made, Democrats say, look, one of the big problems is, is that we need to have individuals who are willing to both spend but have corresponding tax increases. But I don't see any Republic, uh, Democrats talking about these in terms of how we're going to pay for it, especially given that we're talking about numbers that, that far outpace even total government spending in the past. Democrats often blame Republicans for being the tax cut and spend party. But are we watching Democrats become the spend, spend, spend party? What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I... I share some of your uh, concerns about the economics of this um, 
But <laughs> this will be the show where I keep saying we're in second best world. Uh, you know, I, I think so this, this is, is the second, second best. Okay. Second best solution, right? Because I, I think you're right that it, it's it, it actually spends more than it should um, with with less um, you know less targeted less targeting than would be ideal, and um, you know le- no, really very little idea about um, how it's going to impact. Uh, federal budgets going forward. So you would agree uh, with me on this. I'm, I'm curious because, again, no, I, I don't want to cut I, you off, but, but you would agree say, they I, should have some spending. They need to have some either spending cuts or some taxing increases as part of this bill. You agree with that? No, this is oh. what I'm going to say. Oh, okay. I, I agree with the economics of your um, analysis, but not with the uh, politics of it. I, I think they just need to pass this bill as is, you know, even though I think really? I think it's running some risks with the economy, but I think the political risks on the other side are just too great, you know, because they um, so I do think they need to pass the bill as is because, you know, it's not it's not the bill that would be my ideal bill. But we're in a we're in a a situation here again where um, they're being forced to use the budget reconciliation process, which is a non filibusterable process because there's no Republicans actually willing to negotiate in good faith or not enough Republicans willing to negotiate in good faith faith that they could come up with a bipartisan relief bill in the ordinary course that wouldn't be filibustered. And the um, the reconciliation process can only be used a limited number of times a year. Um, and so if they're going to burn one of their times using it, uh, they, they need to, you know, think of, you know, they need to go very big because they can't uh, come back and, and do more. Don't you think very big is an understatement? Again, we're talking bigger than an entire fiscal year. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, I, 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 I don't think it's a great use of money to give uh, $1,400 to virtually every American. But, you know, Biden promised it on the on the campaign trail, particularly for the Georgia Senate seats. Right. And so I think he needs to deliver on the promise um, because he promised it. And, and I think people voted for him on that basis. And, and so we're not really on a blank slate here where the question is, you know, what's what's the best way to spend. But you, if you, I mean, for example, he could still keep that promise and bring this bill in well lower than it is right now and maybe at least have to code old COVID spending under a, a whole year worth of spending. I mean, I get what you're saying about, hey, you know, I want to, I, I, you know, I, I want to keep my promises. Uh, but is he keeping his promises on the backs of like my children's inability to actually make money and pay? I mean, th- I mean, we're, we're talking about a yeah. historic historic amount yeah. of debt. So well, that great. means that the the deficit if if we're doing these projections right if the, the deficit will be larger than all of these bills. In other words our deficit spending for the first time in history would be multiples of trillions. You know, yeah. even when it's you're not, talking this in terms of real dollars, that, that's not even World War II spending. We're we're, we're surpassing that. Well, but it's not going to be your children. I mean, if, if it has negative impact on the economy, it's probably going to be felt in the form of inflation in the next year or two. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's 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 you know, I mean, our 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 um, you know our parents' generations engage in some deficit spending, and somehow we're still paying lower taxes than they did. You know, I, I don't I don't think it, it's the the idea that um, there is deficit spending means that anyone's children are going to have to pay for it because um, the the, the um, right now today, for instance, I think about eight percent of the federal budget is spent on interest on the debt. 
and about um, 22% of the federal budget is paid for by new borrowing. So, you know, it's, it's always going to be possible to, to, to keep borrowing more to pay. And, uh, um, and, and well, you the, say uh, that as if, I mean, but, but, but eventually you can't do that, right? As a matter of fact, we, we know the points at which uh, countries, I mean, th- this is something that's been economically, you can just work it out, where when you're spending and borrowing surpass a certain level of your entire uh, uh, budget. And, and, and this would, you know, I mean, a lot of times you have this question of like, well, how much this puts us near some of those levels of other countries and uh, changing potentially even our rating status. Uh, so, I mean, you've oh, I don't think so. I don't think it could change. I mean, the United States is not similarly situated to small countries. We're, we're the reserve currency for the world. We're, we're a place that a lot of people want to invest in. We did, in fact, have years, as you mentioned, during World War II, where, where the deficit was, was um, larger um, than the, than the uh, um, amount of revenues that were raised. So we're running deficits of more than 100 percent. And um, it didn't really. In fact, we had pretty good economy in the years after the war um, when that when that deficit dropped some. But, but we of course, had all we had far higher tax rates. And that's where I think Democrats are letting us down, right? One of the ways that was possible was you had a, a, a massively different tax base uh, and, and a different tax structure. So, I mean, I, you know, you know well, here's the yeah, libertarian but, telling the Democrat, hey, yeah. wait a second, no, there's, but you're, there's doing this, be, you're doing this during yeah. a, different, a, a different type of revenue raising than you did during World War II, for yeah, example. Yeah, but there's going to be some tax reform. I mean, I'm not going to say it's going to be enough to pay for all this in the short run or anything, but... Um, or the medium you know, the way, run or the long yeah. run or... Well, right. I mean, probably never in, in the long run either, but I don't think it matters to pay it all off in the long run. And we've, we've been managing to get by for about 75 years without um, paying off debt in the long run. Uh, and, and it still doesn't I, mean I, you should I, buy a Mercedes, though. I mean, <laughs> well, but I, I, the, again, the way the reconciliation rules work, um, technically, the, the filibuster proof um, uh, procedures can be used once each fiscal year for one spending bill for one separate taxing bill and for one separate bill to lift the debt ceiling. Now, now this year, there may be able to be two of each because um, fiscal year 2021 actually started back on October 1st of 2020. Which is normal, yep. Yeah, yeah, and none of those bills were ever done for for this fiscal year. So, um, so I think there can be, you know, the reconciliation can still be used for a spending bill, a taxing bill, and a debt ceiling bill once for the current fiscal year, and then once more during the current fiscal year for the next fiscal year. So, um, uh, so, so maybe they get two shots. But I think that the tax bill will be a different one. And and just like Trump in 2017 came in and used the tax reconciliation process to do the tax cut bill in 20. Uh, 17 with no Democratic votes, um, you know, I think the um, the Dems are going to do that. And and Biden has been talking about raising the, the income tax rate on corporations and the uh, income tax rate on um, individuals who earn more than 400000 um, and maybe doing something to reduce the disparity between the capital gains tax rate and the, and the ordinary income tax rate. I mean, Biden has definitely been talking about some targeted tax increases, and I'm quite sure that's coming. Now, what, whether that's going to um, add up to the kind of money that this, that, that, this, that this stimulus bill is costing, I'm sure it won't, but, but, the, but the tax bill will remain in effect, you know, for years. And the, um, the stimulus bill right now seems to be a one-time deal. I mean, I guess this is the second this is time. The third time deal. Third. Yeah, but the, the middle one was much, much smaller. Um, uh, and I think the first one was actually larger than this one. But we are going to come near the end of the pandemic. I mean, already about one out of every, every eight people in the country has already been vaccinated. Um, 
Um, you know, I think by the end of summer, the expectation is that substantially everybody who wants to be vaccinated will be vaccinated. And and I think you will see so many businesses um, reopening and so many jobs opening up again um, that there won't nobody will be talking about another stimulus bill like this in another six months. So um, so I think, you know, tax increases have a longer period of time to, to collect revenues than, than this stimulus bill is going to be spending revenues. So I, I think things will come back into balance a bit um, uh, or at least be moving in the right direction. And I, and I wouldn't really believe in the parade of horribles about, um, you know, that this is going to turn into Greece or something and the whole thing is going to collapse. I mean, this is the, the United States. I don't think the whole thing is going to collapse. I, I, I hate that point. But I, I think that your, that your analysis that you can kind of have an endless spend is a longstanding democratic uh, trope that ignores some of the real uh, economic evidence. Uh, and, and, and as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm in some ways I'm happy. As a matter of fact, that you, that the Democrats are going to do it uh, via re- reconciliation because I I do not think that this will go down in history as a good one. And I think the Democrats are going to have to end up owning it. My only real question is, is I hope that Republicans can capitalize on it in a positive way in 2022 and 2024 and not allow it to help Trump. But but I think that in some ways that uh, or that kind of that Trump party. Uh, but you no, know, I, I think Democrats are going to end up having to eat this one. And and I, I think that your idea of like, well, it's just a little bit more spending. It can't have any harm. Um, it, it is just a, an example of you agree with me and you say it's kind of second best. But let's be honest, Democrats can force through whatever they want to. So they could force through an actually a good bill. They're choosing not to force through a good bill no. because why? There's no there's no reason. No, they, they don't need Republicans. They don't need no, a single Republican. Only- because they can only um, do this this limited number of times. So, so for instance, they could do a bill where they just give everybody fourteen hundred dollars, you know, if it were possible to come back later and do a bill to save the post office, and if it were possible to come back later and do a bill to to to, right. to help so state local governments. they're throwing in tons of spending items that they cannot pay for in a historically large bill, right. totally with their own votes, and they know it's a bad bill, and you're admitting it's a bad bill. So they've no. you guys got to eat it. Like that's what's no, going to happen I, well, down for, the. For one thing, I, I think it, 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 it's it, I don't say it's a bad bill. I say it's a second best bill. And uh, um, I think it's better. It's worth doing on balance because it, it does a lot of things that need to be done and that won't otherwise be possible to do unless they do it right now as part of this bill. It is and no so different I, than Congress. Listen, this is Congress saying in one particular month, we're going to spend our yearly budget more than our yearly budget. But somehow that's going to work out. That is insanity. Like I mean, there, there is no, there is no universe in which any normal human being gets to spend their entire year's budget in a month and say, "Hey, that's not going to cause some kinds of problems." Now, does that mean that the economy is going to collapse? Of course not. We don't have to be, uh, you know, the uh, the Pauls of the world uh, and say, "Hey, look, we need to be in a gold standard." But I mean, listen, on the left and the Democrats, you guys have got to recognize that's not a second best. That that's a disastrous bill. Well, what's what's the disaster? I'm sort of still missing what you think the harms are going to be. Um, okay, you know, so, so let, let's be honest. If 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 none of the money spending mattered, why why not just spend an infinite amount of money every particular year? I mean, clearly well, you would, you'd matter. find that to be ridiculous, right? 
No, no, I'm not saying no harms will happen, but I, I think, you know, if there's, if like, say we've had years where inflation has been pretty low, like 1%, you know, so let's say next year, because all this money's floating around, you know, inflation goes to two or two and a half percent. You know, I think that's a harm, but I think the, the harms um, are outweighed by the benefits of doing the bill when you include both, you know, the fact that some things really need to be done, like say the post office really needs to be bailed out. It would be much more of a harm if the post office failed than if inflation went up a little bit. Um, and in other cases, I think, you know, uh, political promises well, I think you're were made. underestimating the amount. So when you say, oh, it's just going to be inflation a little bit, I mean, again, we've at the rate that we're talking here, if you go back, we're not talking about inflation increasing maybe 1% or 2%. We're talking more in the range of 3 and 4%. And that's, again, when you're starting to get into those areas where we can see, economically speaking, that this has long-term harms. Uh, so, for example, to people's long-term savings, right? So you can say, hey, that's only a, you know, even in your particular estimate, let's say we put it at that 2.5%. Um, that means that individuals who are saving and trying to get done for retirement now have to do a 2.5% more per year for their earnings in order to be able to save. I mean, you're talking about actual working class human beings, and it's a secondary back tax that they're all paying. Nah. Uh, and, <laughs> and they're paying a tax on the backside. That's the, that's the truth. The stock market's been doing better than 10% a year. People saving for retirement um, are, are, are not going to be that badly harmed if inflation goes up a little bit. And I'm, I mean, I'm one of them. I'm 55 years old. But, uh, you know, the, the, the but money But you have to actually- be honest, then that is, in fact, a harm on those people. And it's yeah. an invisible harm. And that's why the, that's the reason Democrats are doing it this way. It's because they don't have to raise taxes. They can have an invisible tax on a bunch of people who don't realize what this means as a compound interest over their savings over time. So, so what you're what you're advocating for here is that you're saying, look, Joe Biden has to keep this promise. And the way he's going to keep this promise is by having an invisible tax on individuals. And that way he can push it through without actually having to talk about the real thing. Democrats could raise tax, put it part of this deal, but they're not doing that because they'd rather have it at the back end. They don't want to take it. They don't want to take responsibility for historic spending increases. No, I think that's wrong on, on both counts. For, for one thing, I was being honest about it. I'm the one who raised the issue of inflation. Uh, my, my, my point is that I think that will happen, but that I, I think the benefits outweigh the, the harms that the um, small amounts of inflation will cause. And, and, and then the other thing is that a lot of the people who are being benefited by, um, you know, to the extent that the people are getting $1,400 checks, a lot of the people getting those checks right now are people who actually are uh, um, either um, having, you know, out of work or having reduced mm-hmm. income or having a hard time making ends meet. And so they, they really actually need the money to live on. And that's and that's actually more important to them. You know, and, and I do think 75 grand cap is still a little high, but but I but I think for some people who are who are making less right now, um, you know, they're really in a, in a situation where they, they need the emergency aid and that that's more important than, than um, being very vigilant about inflation. So I, I think there's costs and benefits here. Um, but I think when you're counting the, um, the, the costs, there, there's also costs of doing too little. Um, you know, Obama was only able to do too little in 2009, and, and it caused a much slower recovery um, than, than there might have otherwise been. And I think government has to be seen as actually delivering results to people to restore some of the faith in government. And to the extent that government can do that right now, that's beneficial. And finally, I did say, I do believe the Dems are going to raise taxes. I, I think that's part of the plan. It's just not part of this bill. But that's actually normal to do that in a separate bill. Well, I mean, I, I'm on board as long as you're going to try to make the ends meet. But I think that I, th- I think you are downplaying 
uh, some of the harms. And I think this this is an example of, you know, I oftentimes hammer on Republicans for wanting to to cut taxes, uh, but not actually uh, pay for those tax cuts. And uh, on the other side, this is going to, this is the same kind of thing. Small amounts of tax increases will not pay for a one year spending in three bills. Uh, and, and so to say that even at the most minimal level of harm, you're talking about a particular back end tax. And I think the reason both parties do this is something that Mike and I have talked about, too, is because it's politically expedient. It, it's a way of doing what you're suggesting. It looks like governments are doing good. At the same time, they're not actually paying the bill, but they're going to pay the bill. Uh, but they're paying the bill in an invisible way, uh, in, in, in a dishonest way, in my opinion. Um, because they don't want to pay for it on the upfront. And so, you know, maybe I'll eat my words if later in the uh, year Democrats uh, move the needle either on spend, uh, some spending items uh, and, and cut those back in a way that, that helps pay for this and or they meaningfully raise taxes in, in, in a way that it's going to even take a bite out of this. Uh, but I doubt it. I think that you know. I mean, if you if you look at 1.9 trillion spent now plus plus three, what, what about 3.6 trillion? It ends up being uh, 4.448 trillion for all three bills together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So no, I, I agree with you that the, they're not going to raise taxes to collect 4.4 trillion more dollars in a year. Um, but I think you know they're going to raise taxes, you know, by maybe uh, to collect maybe maybe somewhere between a tenth and an eighth of that amount um, more in a year, and 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 that, those increases are going to stay in effect, you know, at least until the Republicans come back and take control and, and reduce them again. Uh, and there isn't going to be a need for for stimulus spending like this uh, every year. And in fact, tax revenues may go up by even more than just the amount of tax increases because you're going to have a lot of businesses coming back online after the pandemic and paying. Taxes again. You're gonna have a lot of people going back to work and paying taxes again. So I think revenues would just naturally go up even without a, a rate increase. And I do think you're going to see rate increases on corporations, on people who earn more than 400 grand, and on capital income. Well, I guess we're gonna end there because we are coming quickly to the end of our show. Goodness gracious, Ken, it's been a lot of fun doing the show, and I want to thank all of our listeners uh, for being part of the Politics Guys. I know that all of the hosts, myself included, love working on the show. It's truly a labor of love. We wouldn't be doing it right now if it wasn't. Um, but to make this all possible, it takes the support of amazing listeners like you. And one of the ways you can help the show is by subscribing to the Politics Guys on our podcast app of your choice. And so does sharing episodes. It's one of the best kinds of advertising we have. But we also need your support. One of the great things about being a supporter is you get access to supporters-only content, which includes another full-length show. You thought this one was long. Just wait till you get to our bonus show. <laughs> where Ken and I debate something else. I don't even know. Actually, we're going to take on in this bonus show, we're going to be taking on your questions. And one of the new things that we have for supporters is a Discord channel. And I'm going to be honest, I have not been as active in the Discord channel as I've hoped. Discord, I'm a social media guy, but Discord has been difficult for me, but I was getting into this. And so a number of the questions we actually got today, because I was reaching out to our Discord channel. So if you want to be part of that Discord channel, maybe get your questions here on the show, uh, we'd love for you uh, to be able to chat with myself or with Mike 
and gain access by becoming a supporter. So maybe you want to be a supporter. You want to be able to listen uh, to our listeners-only content where Ken and I take on your questions here in just a moment. Uh, if you want to do that, uh, you can actually head to the Politics Guys uh, webpage uh, or check out our Patreon page. So again, if you head to patreon.com slash politicsguys, uh, you can support the show there or you can head directly to politicsguys.com slash support. So you can join myself and Ken again on the bonus show this Wednesday by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. The other really cool thing is uh, I know that Mike put out a call and we were trying to raise some funds for a new editing machine for him. And we've already met that. And we used another new tool, which was uh, Vimo. Uh, and so you can also support the show via Vimo. So if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, Nathan Salznowski, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkinson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show next week. I hope you'll join us then.